Hello and welcome to The Retiring Room. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Katie. And we are your co-hosts. As promised last week, we are going to be talking about everybody's favourite witch, Serafina Pakala, giving you some stuff on her story, on who she is, why she's important, and going through some of her highlights. So, Katie, do you want to start off by giving us a thumbnail of who Serafina Pekula is? So, Serafina is the clan queen of the Lake Inara witches, which are the furthest north, I believe, of all the witch clans we meet or hear about. She functions as a guide figure, especially for Lyra, to some extent Will, and then she also helps out Lee and the Egyptians. She has a big expository role in the story. She gives a lot of information particularly to characters who don't have access to the alethiometer and she's just generally amazing and we love her yep we really do so first of all we'll talk about where she appears i mean pretty much everywhere that's important yeah she's often just around places even if she doesn't play a big role in them yeah so she notably starts in lyra's world that's her place of origin yeah but she goes through the window into Chittagatse, where she meets up with Lyra. She ends up in the Mulefa world, where some of her most important conversations happen. Yeah. And she even has a brief foray into Will's world for, well, all the heartbreaking stuff at the end. Oh, I was just reading that before we started recording, and it's so heartbreaking. I can't imagine how she would have coped. By being old and wise and knowing that these things pass. Yeah. I calculated roughly when she was born and she was born in the 17th century. Yeah. So you can imagine in all that time, she's probably seen a lot of pain. So we thought we'd start off by giving just a brief chronological run through of her story, just to remind anybody who's not read it in a while, what cool stuff she does. And ourselves. Yeah, that too. (laughs) So she's very first mentioned by Father Coram in terms of reasons why they should go north like where in the north are they going to go where are they going to get help and the obvious answer is we're going to go to the witches specifically Serafina Pekala because they have history and once they've made it up there Kaisa appears to them in Trollocent and talks about other worlds witches demons and whether Serafina Pekala will help them or not Yes, and they talk a little bit about also what's happening at Bolvanga, but the witches are not aware at this point. They know something's happening, but they don't know what, and they're not particularly caring at that stage. No, they haven't sort of made their alliances in quite the same way yet. Yeah, they very much see it as a human affair. So then, following on from that, she does get involved at the battle at Bolvanga, mm-hmm. and Kaiser also helps prior to that with the escape of the demons very bravely. Yes. It's a beautiful scene, but utterly heartbreaking. And then after that, she helps Lyra and Lee and Yurik on their way to Svalbard. Her witches are helping to pull the balloon. She has some very interesting conversations with Lyra and Lee in the balloon. I think at one stage, Lyra is asleep and she has a great conversation about the prophecy. Yeah. Which is really good. Then we're heading into The Subtle Knife. Mm -hmm. And there's an awful scene at the beginning of that book in the chapter Among the Witches where she encounters a tortured witch's demon and then she encounters the witch herself mm-hmm. and she has to act. And I suppose we'll talk about that a little bit later. Then she does a little bit of travel herself after this traumatising moment. She talks to Dr. Lancelius, who's the consul. And then she talks to Thorold, who is Lord Asriel's old manservant, I think is the word they use. Yes, yeah, a little archaic, but we'll work with it. There's the witch council itself, where 
all sorts of interesting decisions are made and they choose to go and ally themselves to Lyra because of course they don't know about Will at that point. And then she's somewhat absent later on, isn't she, until the end of the Amber Spyglass where she has some really important conversations with Mary, with Will and Lyra, with Kiriava and Pan. Yeah, I mean, well, there is there is the point where she's in Chittagatse and her and her witches do help Will and Lyra, but nothing major really happens. Well, it does, but we'll, we'll talk about like the one major thing. True. I just remember from reading, I remember there's a lot of walking. Yep. <laughs> and then towards the end, we've got the broken arrow. And then, yeah, she sort of says goodbye to them at the end. And then she accompanies Lyra home. Yes. And then presumably just heads back to her own land. I guess so. I don't think it's actually said, is it? No, it never is, because we kind of leave it in the garden. Yeah. And then we're just back in Oxford, and Lyra's left Serafina. But several weeks later, you assume she's gone back to live her another half a millennium (laughs) that she's probably got left on her life. Yeah, that's the kind of roundup of where she appears I always forget what a big gap there is in her story between sort of partway through the subtle knife and the end of the amber spyglass. Like you just don't see much from her, do you? Yeah, there's quite a big gap for quite a lot of characters because if you're not with Lyra and Will when they're off going to the world of the dead, from that moment on, really, unless you're one of the couple of characters who we see in random chapters, you're not really there. That's true. So... Why are we talking about her? Why is she worth a podcast episode? She's kind of the focal point of the witches. In terms of there are people that are important to the world and Philip Pullman, as a great author, is right that oftentimes you need one character to centre it around. We don't have time to learn about all of the witches and all of their lives, so we learn about her. Her relationship with Father Coram and what we learn about their life together kind of highlights one example of human-witch relations. It sort of seems almost typical of how they go. However, she is a very different kind of witch. She's a clan queen, which, while there don't seem to be many witches, so their chances of being a clan queen are higher, it does still mean that yeah. they're more important. And, of course, Serafina, Yorick and Lee are pretty major figures for Lyra specifically. Like All three of them have a role in the story, but that role is kind of quite significantly through the lens of Lyra's experience. I don't know if they're replacement mm. parents or at least a foil for her actual parents, but the three of them become these big figures for Lyra. And of course, yeah. as well as revealing a lot of information, Serafina is the person who brings out a lot of the decision-making that Will and Lyra, and to an extent Mary, have to make towards the end of the book about what they're going to do with their lives. So she's kind of in a lot of important conversations and a lot of important moments for a lot of people, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a world with angels, she very much seems like a guardian angel type figure, almost. The actual angels in the story, personally, I don't find nope. it particularly helpful. <laughs> Serafina's method of guidance is much more how you would think of that. She doesn't force anyone to make decisions. She just advises and offers wisdom in the kindest way. Yeah. Okay, so thinking a little bit about where Philip Pullman maybe got some of the influences, because uh, Seraphine is probably one of the more interesting ones for that. Um, did you have a look about what her name means? Yeah, so the anecdote that Philip Pullman came up with her name from the Helsinki phone directory <laughs> is, I think, it's one of the more well-known 
options for where her name came from. Mm. And he has said it in a couple of different interviews. But interestingly, he said in one of those interviews, pretty much he said, I got it from the phone book. He gets the laugh. He says, well, now I've got the laugh. I'll actually tell you what happened. (laughs) So he was looking through Whitaker's Almanac, which is a book that has an awful lot of interesting information. It's got everything from proper forms of address for a baronet to an in-depth top-down structure of the the British government. Um, And it also lists foreign cabinet members. So he was looking down the list for Finland and he came up with Serafina and Pekala from that list. The whole name Serafina Pekala doesn't exist per se in that setting, but he um, built the name out of that list. And we will link to the interview where he said that because it's got loads of really interesting stuff from him. I mean, I guess the phone book story is kind of a quicker way, but I think the Whitaker's Almanac one's much better. I'm inclined to agree. I used to read Whitaker's Almanac at my granny's when I was a little kid and it just had this fascinating little array of information that I was never, ever going to need. No, it sounds like a great book to flick through. It certainly was when I was eight. So we know Serafina Pekala is from Lake Inara and you had something interesting on that, didn't you, Katie? Yes. So we had a look at the map that John Parry provides at the end of um, The Subtle Knife. And we also looked at real maps of the region, basically. And Lake Inara pretty much maps to Lake Inari, which is in the far north of Finland in the Lapland region. So, you know, Finland, it's roughly in Finland, but it's a little more complicated in that area. Particularly when you take which land territory into account. Yeah, exactly. They're based on bird migration patterns, so it's a little more complicated. And the Inara part is the Swedish name for the Finnish lake. So it's kind of a bit of a nod to that as well. Yeah. It's just really lovely. You can actually look at it, you can see the real place where she lives. There's some interesting islands on there called... I'm right, one of them's called Graveyard Island. Oh, I didn't know that one. Yes, and it's a place where the Sami people of that region, where their ancestors are buried in the middle of Lake Inara. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. That's extremely cool. Yeah, just a random little fact we also found. And so on other names, we had a look at Kaisa's name, Seraphina's demon, and there's a funny story about that as well. Yeah, so as you know, Kaiser is Serafina Pekela's demon. He is a snow goose, and he is most definitely a he, in keeping with the vast majority of Lyra's world, where somebody's demon is going to be the opposite sex to them. However, Kaiser is actually a female given name, which is also very popular in Norway. So it confuses and irritates Finns a little bit. And honestly, it confuses and irritates me a little bit, because, you know... Philip Form was normally really good at this. I know, like so many Scandinavian names for girls end in A and it's just very clear. I know, I know. But the interesting thing is that it then presents problems for translators because they see that Kaisa is a female name. So they gender Kaisa as female which is then obviously not quite correct. And I was I was having a chat with somebody in a Facebook group about his dark materials and I kept referring to Kaiser as he and they were like, uh, what? No, Kaiser's a girl. And I'm like, no, no, that's definitely not the thing. And the Greek translator has gendered Kaiser as female because of the name. Mm. And the person I was chatting to was slightly disappointed because they'd sort of had this image of Serafina Pekela being really interesting and being one of those people who has a demon the same sex as themselves. And it's a translation error. Oh, you just broke someone's heart. I did feel quite bad. Because <laughs> we only meet one person who's got to do with the same gender as themselves, and they are pointed out for that fact. Absolutely. It's a shame. 
but oh well. Okay, so some other real world influences we were looking at. Charlotte is a bit of a plant obsessive. I don't know if that's the if that's the correct word you would like to use for yourself. That works as well as any. It's probably a little more dignified than the alternatives. Fair enough. So Charlotte got a little bit obsessed finding out about the plants that are associated with Seraphina Pecola. So I'll let you take that away. So we get, well, three plants really associated with one is cloud pine, which you've already heard me spout off about last episode. But you get her crown of little red flowers. And the little flower that she leaves at Lee's grave to mark his resting place for Yorick Bennison to find him. So I set myself the challenge of working out what the red flowers in her crown were. And it's it's pretty difficult. The only book I can find about native flowers to Finland is 70 quid. And as much as I love this podcast and as much as I'm dedicated to the research, no. But I took a look through the flora and fauna that you can find in the Inardi region, and I have found some really solid contenders. The first one I found is called Red Clover. It's not actually red, but it's a fairly dark pink. You know, it could be mistaken for red. And it's just like ordinary clover, except it's dark pink rather than white. It's native to all sorts of places, including around the area of northern Finland we're talking about. Another option is creeping azalea, which is found in the Lapish Fells in northern Finland. And it's not super common around the place. It's found on kind of dry, open fell moors and that kind of thing. Okay, so probably not not really around a lake then. Not necessarily, but it is sort of the right colour-ish. I mean, again, it's, it's dark pink, dark red. It's not scarlet, which is a slight shame. Another option is a Lapland rhododendron, which is not actually native at all, because rhododendrons are native to the Himalaya. But the Lapland rhododendron is found only in the remotest corners of Finland. There are some very specific places, but it says the three fells of Enontekiö and very rarely in Utsjoki. Uh, Apologise to any Finns. But I took a look and actually Enontekiö is, as far as I can guess, within the realms of where Serafina Pekula was clan queen. Mm. So that's definitely possible. And the last possibility, and I'm not particularly convinced by it as a strong one, is that there's actually a red crocus. I, You know, a red crocus is not completely out of the question, but crocuses aren't actually native at all to that bit of Europe. No, it might have to be the very heights of summer. Yeah, and to be honest, even that far north, height of summer is not really, you know, you're not going to be wearing shorts in it. So I sort of hit a bit of a blank as to what this this flower could be. None of them are actually red. They're the right kind of end of the colour spectrum, but they're not, they're not really red. No. We'll include pictures in the show notes, so you can make your own conclusions. And there's absolutely nothing saying that flowers that appear in our world have to be the same colour when they appear in Lyra's. But going to the purple flower that she puts at Lee's final resting place, that is actually named as a purple saxifrage, which is a fascinating little flower. It's really sweet. It's really common all over the high Arctic and in some mountainous areas further south including kind of northern britain the alps the rockies that kind of place and it's really 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 hardy like it survives a lot 
the Swiss botanist Christian Körner found the plant growing at an elevation of 4,505 metres in the Swiss Alps, which makes it the highest elevation flowering plant in Europe. And it's even known to grow on Kafferklubben Island in North Greenland at 83 degrees north and 40 degrees east, which is the most northerly plant locality in the world. Wow. And it's a beautiful, delicate looking flower as well. Yeah, it grows quite low to the ground. It's only sort of a couple of inches high, which is why it can survive at all. Yeah, so those are the two kind of flowers that are strongly associated with Serafina Pecola in the books. And it, get, it gets me excited. And the definitive guide doesn't say much at all about plants. We had a look earlier and it's literally just a long list. Yeah. With no explanation of anything they mean. There's a bit of explanation of some of the trees, but... Even that's brief. Yeah, and it, it's fine. I mean, what would an episode of this podcast be without a little bit of random speculation? Yeah. So now we've introduced Serafina Pecola and some of the trivia around her, some of her stories, some of the basics of her role. We wanted to delve a little bit deeper into some of mm-hmm. the themes that we've briefly mentioned. So the very first of these is... Her role as a kind of yeah, kind of a bit of an info yeah, dump, really, for characters that don't have access to the alethiometer. I mean, certainly Lyra doesn't need to really learn much from her, though she does kind of teach Lyra some of the questions she should be asking. I suppose you could argue. Yeah, I was, I was going to say like there's there's definitely quite mm. a lot of help that she gives yeah, Lyra definitely. as as so well right as the beginning. Else. We're starting off with the demon law. Kaiser is the first clue of this one. The fact that we meet Kaiser and we don't meet Serafina is very unusual in Lyra's world. You would not normally meet a demon who was not near its human. That's a very abhorrent thing. But they are completely joined, and as with all witches, they can separate. Yeah, and they achieve this separation deliberately as well. It's it's not just something that they're born with the ability to do. It's a yes, rite of passage so that they have young, to achieve. When they're young, you can imagine they are like any other human. They live with their demons. But when a witch comes of age, she has to walk through the barren lands, a place where their demons cannot go. And it's very painful for both of them, but it doesn't kill them in the same way that pulling a, a normal human child from a demon would kill them. And there is a period of healing afterwards. Yeah. The demon is hurt, as you might imagine, but eventually they forgive each other and so obviously that then hits back to Will and Lyra towards the end of the book yeah because they've gained this ability by going through the world of the dead but they can't really talk about it to well they don't think anybody at that point they have no idea who to talk no, to about this Will other is than Seraphina Pecola. The idea of even having a demon, let alone one that can separate from him. But Lyra just has a completely different relationship with Pantalaimon. And yeah, so at the end of the book, you do Absolutely. have Seraphina having a conversation with Pantalaimon and Kiriava and not with the humans, which is fascinating, really. And yes. They handle it very well. And Kaiser's not present at that moment either. It's a lovely little mirror moment to the very first encounter with Kaiser, where they're speaking to Kaiser without Serafina Pecola there. And I, I think it's a nice touch that one of her last big major conversations is with yeah. Lyra's demon and really not her. You don't really see her kind of talking with like Lyra that. towards the end of the book. It's all with Pantalaimon. Hmm, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but absolutely. Yeah. And she she has a big role for Kiriava herself as well because she actually names Kiriava and what is it that Kiriava means again yep 
dappled, yeah. Spotted or dappled sense. or something. I was thinking of Kiriyara as being quite like um, yeah. Sothanax, but in a different way. Yeah. And she has quite a lot to say about the settling of demons as well in terms of understanding what Pan and Kiriyava are are most likely to settle as. Because she says, in that same conversation, you won't always be birds, but you will be able to climb. Just see that a little bit further into the future. Interestingly, she doesn't tell them when or how they're going to settle she just says it, it's it's yeah, coming I mean, soon I and think that's really interesting ruined the moment like you know that point where Kiriava and Pantalaimon are coming towards the humans and you see Pantalaimon change but you don't mm. know it's for the last time then and I wonder if Pantalaimon even knows that yeah, yeah I, I think I, it's I think indicated that they don't Kiriava certainly she has barely ever changed in her life and then she suddenly transforms into this cat and that's it that's for life And I guess the last thing that Serafina Pekula really gives us about demons is their purpose. Like, she gives us the only explicit thing about what the purpose yeah, of demons I mean, actually is. We know throughout the entire trilogy that demons are important and humans without demons, mm-hmm. or even witches without demons, are not really human. They're sort of shells. They don't care about the world. They have no curiosity. Yeah. But there's no real purpose given of why they exist positively. And it's in the Amber Spyglass when she's talking to Kiriava and Pantalaimon. She tells them what they have to do as demons. And what she says was, you must help them and guide them and encourage them towards wisdom. That's what demons are for. And when you think about demons, Mm. as I think it's said um, somewhere by Pantalaimon, that demons and dust are essentially the same thing. That makes sense. Demons are there to help you become your best person and live your best life and become wise and so that's why they're there yeah i like that and it's the only time that it's spelled out at all isn't it possibly we'll get that more in the book of dust Mm. because they are definitely focusing on demons and demon law but more about their relationships really so far not really about the purpose yeah so Serafina's role gives us so much about demon law and a lot about responsibility and it's not hope, it's not even optimism, but it is a very kind of future-oriented feel to a yeah, lot of the conversations she has, certainly at the end. To the world and other people in it is definitely what she thinks, which is very much in keeping with her character throughout the whole of the trilogy Absolutely. and we know more of her life. She dedicates herself to other people, not to herself. Absolutely. So basically, without Serafina Pekula, we don't really know much about demons. Yeah, which is because demons are fascinating things. So moving on from Serafina's expository role within the book, we thought we would talk a bit about witch law, because although we've talked about witch last episode quite a lot of the sort of specifics of it are seen through and from Seraphina. so the first thing we wanted to talk about is Yambe Aka again which is the witch goddess I suppose of death and this comes at the moment on the ship where Seraphina has encountered a tortured witch a witch being tortured by Mrs Coulter as it turns out and the witch cries out Yambe Aka come to me 
And all the people in the room are very confused by this, but Seraphina understands immediately. She knows that the witch is ready to die and probably needs to die. Otherwise, she might reveal too much or she's just in too much pain. And Seraphina immediately, she's in a position of invisibility at that point. She stops that invisibility and she puts a smile on her face because Yambe Aka's visits are always visits of joy. And she steps up and she gently kills the witch with a kiss on her cheek. And we talked about this before, but we wanted to talk about it specifically with Serafina and what the implications are for her, without thinking about it, assuming this role of a goddess she believes in. And what does that mean? Because when she talks about her own mother, she talks about Yambe Aka coming for her mother. Yeah. But she didn't see Yambe Aka coming for this witch. She had to do it herself. Yeah. And I just found that interesting for her own religious beliefs, I suppose. Yeah, for me, I see it as a very pragmatic thing. Because, I mean, you think about the, the audience, because of course there was an audience for that scene, which is gross, but there we are. That's the magisterium for you. But I think it was kind of intended as a piece of theatre for their benefit, almost. Like, the witch calls for, for Yambe Aka and Serafina Pekala. Like, she, she, know, she knows her cue when she hears it. And I don't know if the intention was that the people watching would think that it really was Yambe Aka or whether there wasn't any hope of them really thinking that. I mean, it turns out they didn't think that was what had happened. But I'm not sure I necessarily see it as a big philosophical or even theological move on her part. I think she just wants to make the witch's end as acceptable as it can be and give her that last moment of seeing the summation of her own beliefs. And the witch definitely dies peacefully. Yeah. It's one of the more moving deaths of the of the series. But I always wondered if sometime later she thought about that moment and does Yambe Aka exist? Will Yambe Aka really come to me when I die? Mm. Or is it all imagining? I always wonder if she thinks about that. Yeah. Well, possibly I'm just going down a rabbit hole. I've always found it interesting. Yeah. That's a really fascinating one. I like that. Yeah, certainly. All right. So in terms of other witch lore, she is a witch and with witches, they have powers. And the time we really see her using this most of all, we see her do little things like she preserves Lee's body until Yurik turns up. She does little things like that. But the big one is the healing spell scene in the subtle knife. Will has just lost, it's his fourth finger and ring finger, if I'm right. Uh, yeah. On his left hand, I think. And Mm -hmm. the wound will not stop bleeding because it's by the subtle knife, which is not a normal knife. And the witches are very confused by this and they decide to do a holding spell to hold the blood. And I will let you take this away, Charlotte. So this moment... It's in chapter 13 of The Subtle Knife, and it's it's where Serafina Pekala leads the healing spell. So they have they have a potion, and more importantly, they have a spell to go with it. Yeah, it's a wonderful part of the audiobook. Oh, it I is. I recommend again if anyone hasn't heard them. Oh, yes, entirely. But the thing for me, and nobody seems to have written about this at all, which I find... Strange, because the reference seems so obvious. I don't find it strange, given the lack of knowledge of this subject matter. Okay, maybe this is just me. So, the spell, little knife, they tore your iron out of Mother Earth's entrails, built a fire and boiled the ore, made it weep and bleed and flood. Philip Pullman didn't entirely come up with this all on his own. It's actually based on another poem. And 
it's a poem that is very, very close to my heart. And it's called Kalevala, which is the Finnish national epic. It was compiled mid-19th century or so by a GP who decided to collect a bunch of stories in the eastern part of Finland in Karelia. I never knew that. Yeah, it's kind of great. And he put them together. It's it's quite a literary work. I mean, it's it's marketed as a as a mythological epic work, but it's very very sort of constructed by Lönnrot, who is the guy who put it together. And it's got some really heavily Christian influences, and it's a bit it's it's it's, it's a weird weird book in places. <laughs> Can highly highly recommend reading it. But there is a scene in it, in the ninth runo, which is like a, a canto or a section or a chapter, in which one of the main protagonists, Vainamonen, has um, hit himself in the leg with his own axe, as you do. Yep. And he finds an old man to help him heal himself. And he addresses iron and the axe specifically. I'll read a bit from it. Well, at the day's end, iron was drained from the swamp, from the slack place was stirred up and brought to the smith's workshop. The smith thrust it into the fire, down into his forge pushed it. He puffed once, puffed twice, puffed a third time too. Iron as gruel lulled, as dross it foams. It stretched as wheat paste, as dough of rye flour, as the smith's great fires in the power of naked flame. It is incredibly vivid imagery throughout. Mm. And... It's part of this thing in Finnish folklore where if you can name the origin of something, you have power over it. Oh, okay. And that's the central point of this. So where in The Subtle Knife, it says, you know, this is where the iron came from. This is how they made it. This is how they made you. This is how they made the knife. So we can control you. Exactly. So when you can name the origin of something, this this is a concept that turns up a bunch of times in the Kalevala, and particularly in the last bit, in this, this the second half of the spell, when you know she's really getting to sort of the crux of it, she says, but "Obey me. Turn around. Be a lake and not a river. When you reach the open air, stop and build a clotted wall. Build it firm to hold the flood back." And in the Kalevala, in the corresponding bit, it says, Hold blood your spilling and gore your rippling upon me spraying, spurting on my breast. Blood stand like a wall, stay gore like a fence, like an iris in a lake stand, like sedge among moss, like a boulder at a field edge, a rock in a steep rapid. So there's this very direct command to, in the Kalevala, the iron of the axe, and in the little knife, the iron of the knife. I, I remember when I was reading it, that's one of the things that always strikes me is I've never heard kind of the knife or in anything like that addressed before. You think of Romeo and Juliet. She does address the knife, but it's not that way. She's not speaking to it. It's almost speaking about it. Yeah. That's kind of the best example I think of. But she almost is talking to the knife as if it's a person. Absolutely. And I remember when I listened to it partway through my degree, because I, I studied the Kalevala for part of my degree, and I listened to it and I was like, ha- hang on, I was reading about this piece of poetry an hour ago in the library. Why is the Kalevala suddenly in my audiobook? And it was this real kind of light bulb moment. It was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, it's a really strong link to Finnish mythology, which of course is the area from whence Serafina Pekela comes. I mean, technically speaking, the Kalevala comes from sort of further south and east. Yeah, but we'll forgive it that one. 
We will, because it's such a strong link. And I, I love Pullman for including it. I think it's wonderful to see a piece of mythology that isn't Greek, Roman or Norse. Yeah. I love it. Absolutely. And we'll we'll link to it in the show notes as well. I know you have a favourite translation. I do. But there are also free ones as well. So there's a bit of her magic. I suppose we really should discuss the other thing of her magic that she can do, or that we see her doing really, is the fiercely held modesty that she achieves on the ship. Yeah. It's made very clear in the book that witches cannot achieve invisibility. It's impossible. But what they can do is almost make themselves unnoticed. They create a fiercely held modesty within themselves, which means that if someone saw them, they would just simply take no notice of them, which renders them effectively invisible. Oh, sort of like a perception filter in Doctor Who. Uh, yeah? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I forget you're not a Whovian, sorry. No, I have to admit that I stopped watching Doctor Who after David Tennant. Fair enough. It's incredibly mentally draining and physically draining, so it's not something they do very often, and it certainly shouldn't be relied upon, but Serafina does it at this one moment to help this witch. And the reason we also wanted to bring it up is that We see the same trait in Will, and the witches also note it. Mm. Oh, no, no, it's not the witches who note it. It's Yurik Bernison who notes his ability to be unseen. Even though he's just defeated an armoured bear, people are not interested in him. Mm. He can turn it on. And it's it's a really interesting link to how Will is almost a bit witch-like. Yeah. And then later becomes more witch-like by his ability to separate from his demon. Or shaman-like, of course, because of his father. Absolutely. I don't know if we ever learn if shamans can carry out magic. I mean, we know they can influence the weather. Yeah. hmm, That'd be interesting as well. It could more be related to him. We'll talk about that when we get to John Parry, I think. Yeah, definitely. The other thing I kind of wanted to bring up at the same moment related to Will, I suppose, is that Will is one of the people she's almost afraid of, Mm. as is Kiriava. Will almost has this ferocity in him, and so does Kiriava, that scares Serafina, which kind of contradicts that fiercely held modesty that they can both do. Yeah. And Serafina can be terrifying herself, so Mm. I don't think it's interesting that way. Yeah. She's certainly a powerful witch, even though she doesn't often use her abilities that way. Yeah, she relies on quite earthbound abilities Mm. in terms being able to fight in terms of being able to talk and reason with people rather than just, you know, snapping her fingers and making things happen. And I I respect that about her. Mm. She's an incredibly good fighter. I believe there's a point she has an arrow and she gets it through a Tata soldier's helmet and it appears kind of a foot through the other side of his helmet. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's gross. She's a fantastic fighter and incredibly brave with it as well. Yeah. Which is no witchly power, but it's certainly impressive. Yeah. Again, when you have centuries to perfect your fighting technique, it's gonna pay off, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how many wars she's been in, but I could only imagine it's been quite a few, because she's an excellent archer. Yes. So I think the only other thing we were going to talk about is, as with all witches... She's also very in tune with nature, as well as being good at human fighting as well. She's great with nature. She's associated with the flowers, as we say. She can make them stay alive, for want of a better word. They won't wither while they're with her. And she also uses crocus pollen to learn about her world. Is that right? Yeah. In chapter two of The Subtle Knife... Serafina Peckler is trying to work out what the hell Lord Asriel is doing. I mean, let's be honest, everybody's trying to wonder what the hell Asriel is doing. Mm-hmm. And this is after the witch torture scene. And um, I'll just read the passage. B 
because all the events that had overturned the world had their origin in his mysterious activities. The problem was that the usual sources of her knowledge were natural ones. She could track any animal, catch any fish, find the rarest berries, and she could read the signs in the pine martin's entrails, or decipher the wisdom in the scales of a perch, or interpret the warnings in the crocus pollen. But these were children of nature, and they told her natural truths. For knowledge about Lord Asriel, she had to go elsewhere. Hmm. It's beautiful imagining her doing that. It is. Because, I mean, we, we've both been to uh, Finland and Scandinavia, and you can agree it's a beautiful place. God, yes. And the idea of just roaming around the wilderness looking for these signs is too beautiful to imagine. It really is. And this whole kind of being in tune with nature thing, it's a real theme that Serafina Pekela particularly, she really sh- she really shows this. Yeah. Because there's the conversation in Northern Lights in the balloon where she's talking about feeling, you know, the tingle of starlight and the moonlight Mm. on her skin. And that's, they feel cold, but not in that kind of biting, horrible way that makes us want to put on a million layers and stay inside. Yeah, they know it won't hurt them. They can feel it and it's not a nice feeling, but they sacrifice that feeling of almost pain because there are so many beautiful things that come with it as well, like feeling the moonlight on their skin and there's a one volume edition of his dark materials that has these things called lantern slides in the battle philip pullman calls lantern slides and they're just little little snippets of information and there's a really beautiful one right at the end of the ones for northern lights about seraphina pecola that I'll, I'll read in full here seraphina pecola on her cloud pine would find a still field of air at night and listen to the silence like the air itself which was never quite still The silence was full of little currents and turbulence, of patches of density and pockets of attenuation, all shot through with darts and drifts of whispering that were made of silence themselves. It was as different from the silence of a closed room as fresh spring water is from stale. Later, Serafina realised that she was listening to dust. Mm. So if that's in the, um, the lantern slides for Northern Lights... We have no idea when it was, but we can only assume it's after the Amber Spyglass. Yeah. Well, the realisation was... Yes, the realisation, for sure. Yeah, the introduction to the lantern slides was from Philip Pullman in February 2007. So, yeah, like, a little while after the Amber Spyglass. So he knew he knew what everything was, and I think he was going back over and putting this information in. But it's a lovely image of Serafina Pecola sitting up there. I know I can picture it so well and it's beautiful and not knowing at first what it is she's looking at and then later knowing and being able to enjoy it for what she now knows it is I really like that yeah absolutely it reminds me I've often taken the ferry from Aberdeen up to Orkney Ooh. for the folk festival but it's a very long ferry it's a six-hour ferry and it goes into the dark at some points okay and you can do something beautiful because it's quite cold, if you go up on the deck on your own and you just listen to the silence, that's the same silence I can imagine her feeling. Oh, It's just the big wide sky above you and you can't see land for hours. It's wonderful. The one time I did it, I went on the short ferry. Wasn't my choice, but there we are. <laughs> <laughs> so the other thing we wanted to talk about then was Serafina Pekela's femininity and what she means for that because there are quite a lot of strong female characters in the series 
Yeah, and we talked about femininity of witches last episode, you know, in terms of what femininity means for them and how they work and how their relationships work and things like that. But we get some quite specific insights with Serafina Pecola on her own, don't we? Yeah, we're going to talk about it in relation to her relationship with Father Coram, first of all. They met, I think, is it 40 years before? So he would have been a relatively young man. He saved her life from another witch's demon. We never really learn the full story of that, but he kills this other witch's demon and saves her. And then they fall in love. And she says she would have happily given up her witch life to be Egyptian boat wife. At that point, her mother is still alive. So she's basically just a free roaming young witch. And then she just lives with him for a while. They have a son together. She becomes a mother. We assume it's the first time she's become a mother, though that might not be true. She is around 300 years old, so in theory she definitely could have had other families, but we don't learn about them, and it's implied she hasn't. Yeah, that that's the implication I get, for sure, because mm. it's it's so important. She almost feels naive in it. A little, yeah. I mean, the, the thing where she would have given up the tingle of starlight and the cold and everything, mm. stay and be his wife and cook his food and bear his children and share his bed, as she says. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a witch who's had other relationships. It doesn't feel like they would say that. Not like that, no. No. So then they have the son, she becomes a mother, but then there's an epidemic and their son dies. He's incredibly mortal. We don't know if witch spells could have saved him. Presumably she tried. Yeah, there's no way she didn't try. No. And then soon after that, her mother also dies, we learn, which means that she must become the clan queen of the Lake Inara witches. And at that point, she certainly feels she has a choice. She is allowed to not do it. But she personally doesn't feel she has any choice. She succumbs to her duty and she goes and she leads her people. She leaves Fadakorum and they don't meet again until at least 40 years when Kaiser meets with him. I'm not certain we see Fadakorum's and Serafina's reunion until the Malefa world. Yeah, and and it's not it's not a big moment because there's so much else happening. I, I quite liked the TV series for that. I yeah. liked that it... It's quite an explicit. There was some nice closure almost. A little, yeah. But there's a reason she sends Kaisa and doesn't go herself because she knows that Father Coram would feel almost embarrassment because he's old. He's struggling to walk now. His yeah. sight's going almost. And while that doesn't matter to her, she knows he's a proud Egyptian man and it matters to him. So she sends Kaisa instead. Mm. So there's this real a gentleness and respect mm. that although she knows what matters and she knows what doesn't matter she doesn't she doesn't want to shame him she has this power but she doesn't want to use it to hurt Fadakorum no certainly not she respects him completely again I love her for that yeah and you can only imagine she must want to see him yeah. Or maybe she doesn't. It might hurt her too much. You could swing it both ways. Mm. I'm slightly sad that when they meet at the end of the Amber Spyglass, you don't see much of their response to each other. No, and she guides the Egyptian boat to the Malefa world, and then she guides it back to their own world, or at least she accompanies them on the boat. Yeah, there's plenty of time. Yeah, but in the same way, it's, it's their moment. And we're following Lyra and Will, really, through the story. And it almost wouldn't have been right for them to have eavesdropped. So we can leave them to have their own private moments. Absolutely. But I, I think, you know, we have this immensely strong woman who we see 
doing all these incredible things and being incredibly wise and patient and kind. But I think there are these very kind of human, quite earthbound decisions, you know. Yeah. The idea that she had given up her witch life, the fact that it was something as kind of basic as death that forced her into making these choices. And I was saying last week, you know, that individual choices are respected among witches. You know, Yutokaminen didn't want to go and find Stanislaus Grimm and she didn't trust herself to see him. So she went with the party who weren't going to meet him ostensibly. Yeah. And so there's this real sense that, yeah, she could totally have chosen not to go back to Lake Inara and take up the crown. And I think it's another element of her strength of character mm. and her strength as a person. And her strength as a woman that, you know, responsibility comes before what you want to do sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. I do I do sometimes wonder though what older Serafina Pakala would tell to younger Serafina. Ooh. It almost does seem a naive idea. The idea that a witch of several hundred years would be happy for well, I guess the whole life of her husband to live as a boat wife is it's an unusual idea i don't think it's ever happened with witches before and whether she would have done that again or continued with it if her son had not died is an interesting question yeah i think it's a slightly tricky set of things to go around because there, there is this idea that women should absolutely be able to choose motherhood if they want mm-hmm but then the idea that she has to give up what she wants to not be a mother, it sort of flips some of the traditional stereotypes and narratives on their head, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. It's very modern almost in a world that is not very modern. Yeah, it's strange. and I, I don't know if Philip Pullman sort of chose that deliberately, but I think it does... It gives us another angle on femininity. And in a story like Lyra's, where motherhood... It's a difficult subject. Yeah, it's a difficult subject and it's an important subject. And... I think adding an, another dimension of motherhood where actually it's something that A, is taken away from you and B, you choose not to you choose not to go back to. Because, I mean, if she'd stayed with Coram, they could have had more children. Yes, absolutely. But there's, so there's another thing she also tells to Lyra, which is probably worth bringing up at this point. She says, although she would have stayed with him, she tells Lyra, you cannot change what you are, only what you do. I am a witch, he is a human. And... You know, she she does make the choice and she was free to make the choice, but she acknowledges that she had a responsibility and she wasn't able to do what she wanted in that moment. I wonder at what point in the preceding 40 years that realisation had come to her. Yeah, because she's been queen for 40 years, which to a witch is not very long, but we don't know what she's seen in that time. Yeah, and I mean, even then, like, she's, what, 300 years or so. Yeah of which she spent 40, that's like an eighth of her life, mm-hmm. just over. That's, you know, like an eighth, an eighth of my life is going to be, what, four or five years, and that's that's a lot. Yeah, and of course the most recent one is probably the most important to you anyway. Pretty much, yeah. But no, she's certainly interesting in the idea of motherhood, which brings us on, I guess, to our next point that we wanted to talk about with her, is her role to Lyra. Lyra obviously grew up without her mother in her life she had women who looked after her notably mrs lonsdale but she would never have called mrs lonsdale motherly no matronly might be the better word for her it's quite a perfunctory relationship isn't it yeah she, she certainly 
takes care of Lyra and keeps her safe and teaches her her manners, but there's not a great deal of affection there. Or really, I suppose, guidance. Lyra doesn't listen to her very much. But then Lyra starts to meet Mrs. Costa, and then I suppose the next female character Lyra really identifies with is Serafina Pakala, and she turns to her for lots of guidance and support, I suppose. And Serafina also grows to love Lyra, as she says, and Lyra loves her. And so then we wanted to talk about how she thinks of her either as a sister or like a mother. So we come at this from quite different angles. For me, I do see Serafina Pekela as somewhat motherly, although the terminology she uses is much more about being a sister and much more about kind of a relationship of equals. I do think that in the same way that Father Coram and John Farr and Lee Scoresby all become kind of quasi-paternal figures to her. I feel like the foil to that is that Serafina Pekela is quite motherly. You know, she helps teach her what she has to do. There's a bond there that's never, never going away. And I think in terms of learning about her adulthood and learning perhaps how to navigate this new changed relationship with Pantalaimon, I think there is a distinct motherly angle to it. Yeah, I see where you're coming from, but... To me, I've always thought of her as a sister, because first of all, that's the terminology that Serafina herself Uh uses. She says that Lyra will always have a sister. I will be her sister always or something like that. And she uses that same terminology for Mary Malone. Yeah. I think using the idea of sister rather than mother implies their equality. And Serafina definitely has a huge amount of respect by the end of the series, if not at the beginning, for Lyra and Will in terms of what they've gone through. And she sees her, though she's hundreds of years older, as her equal, really. So I think it's better to view her as a sister and... I was just thinking as well, if we're thinking about Will at the same time, Will grew up without a father, and while he meets his father through the series, he doesn't know him in that way, and he never will, and he accepts that. In the same way, he has a mother, but he will never have a father. Yeah. Lyra, she has a huge amount more of fatherly figures than she does of motherly figures through the series, Mm. but she will never have a real mother. And I kind of like that symmetry between them yeah actually that there's something that they both will never have and you know lyra has marcosta and she has women she looks up to and can seek guidance from but she doesn't have a mother and that's part of who she is now at the end Mm. so i i kind of like it that way but there's certainly arguments for both of them Absolutely. I think for me, I definitely see Serafina Pekela as a kind of foil to Mrs. Coulter. Mm -hmm. I think they present quite contrasting ideas of femininity. And the the broken arrow, again, yes, it's the chapter title, but it's also a a literal broken arrow because um, after the witch torture scene, Serafina Pekela swears that this arrow is going through Mrs. Coulter's throat. And I find the moment where she breaks the arrow really, I find it really powerful. I think i think it is a really important moment, partly in terms of how we see Mrs. Coulter, but also in terms of Serafina and her decisions about what her focus is in all this. Because ultimately, Mrs. Coulter died saving Lyra. Mm-hmm. And I think... Serafina's breaking of the arrow is a real mark of respect for that action. She respects people for their actions and what they do. And mm-hmm. apart from the fact that the arrow is going to be useless unless she has exceptionally good aim shooting it into the abyss, I think that her deciding that that arrow doesn't matter anymore 
it's a real indication of the fact that she appreciates and understands the importance of what Mrs. Coulter has done in a way that I don't I don't know if Mrs. Coulter would have been the same. No, I can understand that you think that and I see where you're coming from. I don't personally share that view. Okay. To me, that broken arrow scene is far more about Seraphina's wisdom in terms of accepting things and moving forward and moving on than it is about how she views Mrs. Coulter or her actions. You know, there is no Mrs. Coulter anymore to kill. That's true. There's no point being angry about that or sad or happy. She just isn't anymore. There is now a much more different task in the world. So I see it more that way. And to me, it's much less significant than I think it is to you. Okay. Though, who's to, who's to say who's right? Serafina doesn't really clarify her feelings on it. No. It, it could be left ambiguous from the writing. Yeah, because it's, it's Mary Malone and Serafina Peckler talking and Mary's like, Mrs. Coulter, what about her? And, and that's the point where Serafina Peckler breaks the arrow. And for me, it's a very powerful way of answering that question. And it is, I agree, it's ambiguous. It's, it's very far from being spelt out in any obvious way to me it's less of a kind of acceptance of mrs or or kind of a changing of her overall view of mrs coulter i think to me at least how she sees it is she judges her on each individual action the torture of the witch and the cutting of the children at bolvanga make her evil or were evil actions but then what she did for lyra was heroic and great neither makes her a good person or a bad person, everyone is shades of grey. And it's simply that she made a promise that she was going to kill her. She cannot do that anymore. So that's, she has to move on from that and help Lyra now. For me, I think the decision to take future revenge against a single action, it sort of makes a little bit of a mockery of the idea that everybody is a collection of actions. Because if it is just an action, that could be overwritten or reinforced later why make the promise of revenge later and then why make the decision about one action that it that it ends that revenge pact yeah because arguably she deserved that arrow far more for Bolvanga than she did for the witch yeah but she didn't choose to do it for that moment which might say something about witch law we never know no maybe we find out I guess we'll have to just leave that argument to be for now it's either that or continue it for another hour <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it then, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon so. As always, this is just what we can come up with. These are our ideas, things that we think, things that we've developed over our time reading the books. And we would be really, really, really stoked to hear what all of you think. So please send us your feedback, your questions, your corrections, your thoughts, your views on our various pronunciations of things. Yeah, there's a reason I try and not speak Finnish on this podcast. (laughs) I should probably take your lead on that one. You're you're definitely braver than me. Well, we all know that the line between bravery and stupidity is um, all but (laughs) non-existence. True. So yes, please do email us at theretiringroom at gmail.com or get in touch with us through any of our social media channels. Which are at The Retiring Room. We'll include any books that we used, links to interesting things that helped with us in our research, in the show notes for the podcast, or on our website, retiringroompodcast.wordpress.com. And we will see you in a fortnight's time, where we are going to be having an absolute whale of a time talking about the alethiometer. So expect a lot of speculation on that. Oh yes, we will be speculating about all of those symbols, hopefully. We shall see. All 36. All 36. And the infinite number that are contained within them. 
Wonderful. We shall see you then. <laughs> <laughs>